Our Father, we just sang that Jesus was born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us a second birth. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you didn't owe that to us, but it was out of your great grace and mercy with which you loved us. By the Spirit's power, you went to the cross as the Father was in you, reconciling the world to himself. Thank you for this blood of a new covenant that makes the possibility, the reality for those who believe to know you in a life-changing way. We pray in this season that we would not miss the opportunities that you might entrust to us to share the good news. We know the incarnation is incomplete without his coronation. We long and wait and look as you told us to for the day when he will return when he will make all things new, when justice will be fully expressed across the world. In this hour, as we open your infallible, inerrant, holy word, we ask that our hearts be open and sensitive to what you want to say. Please help me, fill me, anoint me. Without you, I can't do anything. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take God's word, please, this morning and turn to the gospel according to Matthew. If you are new to the Bible, it's easy to find. It's the very first book in the New Testament. And if you're joining us for the first time, typically we take entire books of the Bible and we go through chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But before we begin the next book that we're going to study, I'm doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. And if you're new to the Bible, even a casual reader of Scripture, you cannot miss the fact that a central theme in both the Old and the New Testaments is that the Messiah is not going to come once, but twice, that he's going to come again, that he will rule and reign. And at least 17 Old Testament books underscore this. And 21 times in seven out of 10 chapters in the New Testament underscore that Jesus is coming again. He is going to come again. He is going to rule and reign. He's going to fix up this messed up world that we live in. There's over 300 references alone in the New Testament to the return of Jesus from heaven. And that's not surprising because when he comes back, he's going to complete our salvation. Our salvation is not yet finished. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. We're being saved from the power of sin. The New Testament calls that sanctification. But some dear precious day, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. That's glorification. It will happen when Jesus comes. And so the very nature and theme of prophecy is the Lord Jesus. And so the, Old, the New Testament concludes with a prayer, really, where John says, even so come, Lord Jesus. Now, when you think about the coming of Christ, not just his first coming, but his second coming, think of both in terms of a series of events. The first coming, obviously, was not a singular event. He left the glory and splendor of heaven, and the Spirit of God overshadowed Mary's womb, and he took on our humanity. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. He began his public ministry in Nazareth. He was soon run out, and so he made his headquarters, Capernaum. He ministered largely in the Galilee region during his three-plus years of ministry, ended up in Jerusalem where they slew him on a cross according to the preordained plan and foreknowledge of God. For this was written of the Messiah, that he would die for us. He was buried, showing he was dead. He was raised, and then off the Mount of Olives, he ascended into heaven. That's all part of the first coming program. Well, when he comes a second time, 
The next event is he'll catch up the church. A seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation will begin to unfold. He will literally, visibly come back to the earth, and then he will rule and reign for a thousand years. So here's a, a picture of that. Uh, you can see between the rapture and the start of this seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation, there's a space of time. The Bible is clear that the Great Tribulation does not begin with the rapture of the church, but it begins with the covenant, the peace treaty of sorts that Daniel writes about in Daniel 9, and that will make the clock tick for seven years. This seven-year period, known as the time of Jacob's trouble, also called the Great Tribulation by Christians today, is divided into two halves, and that middle slash represents an event known as the abomination of desolation. And as we'll be reminded this morning, it goes from a time of tribulation in the first three and a half years to great tribulation. But these are important events that we need to focus on. Listen to these words by C.S. Lewis. He said, a continued looking forward to the eternal world is not as some modern people think a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were those, just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth only and you will get neither. Now, he wrote that in 1960. When our culture, at least these United States and Great Britain where he lived, was still largely Christianized. I can't imagine what he would have thought of our day. And so 318 times in 260 chapters in the Old and the New Testaments, Christ's return from heaven is spoken of. Now, after the church is raptured and this seven-year period begins, there'll be a one-world leader. He's known by over 30 different titles in the Scripture. The most popular title is one that's used by John in 1 John, known as the Antichrist. He's largely called in the book of Revelation, the beast. And there are two beasts. He has a compatriot, as we'll be reminded of this morning, called the false prophet. And of course, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, remember Daniel in Daniel the ninth chapter tells a prophecy that concerns 70 weeks. And unlike uh, us, where we simply have a week of days, as the Jews do, in addition, they had a week of years. And so when it spoke of a week, you needed to ask contextually, is it a week of days or a week of years? Well, clearly in Daniel 7, or Daniel 9, it's a week of years. And the final week would be, therefore, seven years long. And there's this event that happens right in the middle of this seven-year period that is a game changer. We studied it in verse 15. Let me read verse 15 to you from Matthew 24. Therefore, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet, through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, we've seen thus far, there are two aspects to this evil act known as the abomination of desolation. Again, once the peace treaty is signed, the seven-year period starts, and in the middle of this seven-year period, he goes into the temple and he makes himself out to be God. Paul describes it as well in 2 Thessalonians 2. We're speaking of the Antichrist. He says, 
He's the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Up until this time, he has allowed for a one-world system of religion with all of the religions bled together. And we're moving towards that. And you see the popes and Protestant liberals who are pushing for that even in our day. But in the middle of this seven-year period, he's going to push for exclusivity of worship. You worship him and no one else. He exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. This is known as the abomination of desolation. Now, Jesus went into the temple on a couple of different occasions, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. He cleansed it. He referred to it as his father's house, making himself equal to God, and he claimed himself to be God. Why was that not an abomination of desolation? Because it was true of him. Well, if a Jew is perceptive theologically, then they're going to be thinking in terms of, well, wait a minute, Messiah, a baby will be born, the baby's name will be called Mighty God. Maybe indeed, yes, this one is God. So just going into the temple alone, calling himself God is not necessarily evil, but for the fact it wasn't true of him. But there's a second event that happens with it that is a telltale sign that any thinking biblicist would know this person cannot possibly be the Messiah. And that, of course, is described in Revelation 13. We studied it previously. Let me read Revelation 13 and verse 14 to you. And he deceives those. He's talking about this false prophet. John the Baptist pointed people to Jesus. The false prophet will point people to the Antichrist. He's also called a beast, not to be confused with the first beast. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, in the presence of the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And so we studied this miracle that happens. The Antichrist will literally die. He won't be resurrected like Christ because Jesus was brought out of the grave in a resurrection body. He'll be raised to life like eight other people in Scripture, most famously Lazarus in most of our thinkings. But this will be Satan's finest hour. He will pull off this incredible miracle, and the world will turn and worship to him. But we also studied in the next verse, and it was given to him, this false prophet, to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He will desecrate this holy place by erecting an idol. And any Jewish person would immediately know this cannot possibly be the Messiah because God's will never contradicts God's word. And this is an idol in God. And the Decalogue said, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Their eyes will be opened. Now, up until this time, there'll be mass Jewish conversion. But those Jews who had not yet been converted, this will be the telltale event. Their eyes will be opened. This is a false Messiah. He is not our Lord because he never, ever would do this. So going back to our chart here, again, in the middle of this seven-year period is this event known as the abomination of desolation. Now, we've been studying the first half of the three and a half years 
these judgments that fall on the earth. But once this middle event takes place, again, it's a game changer because it's going to go from tribulation to great tribulation. Now, why would God have us to study these future events, especially since we won't be here? The church will have been taken out. Why would he have so much written in the New Testament, not just of the rapture, but of the second coming? Well, let me give you five reasons why Christians should study these events. Of course, all scripture is inspired by God. Every single word, it's God-breathed and it's profitable. So there's nothing that God writes about, whether it's a genealogy that may bore you to death or whatever it might be, it's all inspired and it's there for a reason. But one of the reasons I think God gave us is because he wants us to learn something about Satan and his evil intentions and purposes. Paul will write to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So in studying the tribulation and Satan's contribution to this time frame, we get a glimpse of what he's like. A good military leader will help his troops to know their enemy. Because when you know the enemy, you know how you can best approach him. And we've been learning how Satan absolutely hates Israel. And of course, it's going to be during this time, especially after the midpoint, that you're going to see a new expression of hatred. Look, it's not by accident that we've had the Hamans and the Hitlers of the world that since the inception of the Jewish nation via Abraham, they've been a persecuted people. There's never, ever, ever been a more hated people on the face of the earth than the sons and daughters of Abraham. The United Nations has written more resolutions against the nation of Israel than all of the nations in the world combined. And we just saw another one this past week that was absolutely disgusting. Satan hates the Jewish people. Jesus, in describing Satan and what he's like, he said he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. In other words, whenever he speaks, he speaks from his own nature, and it's that of a chronic liar. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He is a liar. He is the originator. He's the father of all lies. His motive is murder. His method is to lie, and we will see that so plainly this morning. Paul will tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that he doesn't want us to be in the dark about Satan. Why? So that no advantage would be taken us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We're not ignorant of his schemes, his methodia. We get our word, our methodologies. A second reason I think God would have us to study the tribulation is because it helps us to understand his holy hatred for sin. Uh, one of the reasons the church should read the Sermon on the Mount is because it opens your eyes up to how holy God is if you read the text carefully. The church will be dead and gone, but God's justice and holy, I mean, the church will be raptured and gone to heaven, but, but God's justice will be very prevalent during the time of the great tribulation. And uh, it's important that we understand that justice. Many times God will write of an event for people who will never see it happen. Classic example, the prophet Isaiah. He writes about the Babylonian captivity in Isaiah 39, and it doesn't happen until almost 100 years later. Most of the people to whom he wrote and those who studied it were dead and gone. 
But there were principles about the Babylonian captivity when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar would come down and crush the southern two tribes, Judah, comprised of Judah and Benjamin. There were principles about their sin that the people in Isaiah's day needed to understand that they might not be guilty of the same. A third reason God, I think, would have us to read this portion of Scripture is it's just a reminder that God works all things together for good. That things ultimately, the Scripture is clear, is not going to get better and better. They're going to get worse and worse. I remember when my wife and I brought home our little newborn, our firstborn from the hospital, and there we were with little Jeremy, and we were just kind of overwhelmed. There was like a news cycle that was going on that was just endless evil. And here you had this baby that, of course, we thought he was immaculately conceived. You know, that's the way you'd think about your little ones, that they don't even have a sin nature. And her grandmother reminded us, I'll never forget what Ms. Maud Hill said. She said, Jesus said these days would come, that you're not to be frightened, for these things must take place. Now, that was over 40 years ago. And who would have imagined, I could not have imagined in my lifetime that I would see such an acceleration of evil upon the world. And so there's a fourth reason, I think. One, we recognize God is sovereign. He's working all things together for good, so we don't need to be frightened of the days that we're in. But a fourth reason for studying this is it gives us a sense of confidence to witness now. There's an urgency to witness Now, do you remember Abraham? He was actually taken into the confidence of God. Why? Because he was a friend of God. What a great title. What a descriptive title that I hope, you know, you recognize you have because we are no longer God's enemies, as Scripture says, Romans 10. We're God's friends. We've been reconciled to him. Jesus said, no longer do I call you slaves. I call you friends. We're friends of God, and so God takes us into his confidence, just as he took Abraham into his confidence over what he was going to do in Sodom. Listen to these words from Genesis 18. Then the Lord said, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the Lord, Yahweh, and he comes on this occasion as the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord was the Lord Jesus. Before he ever took on our humanity, at times he would appear as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. After the incarnation, you never, ever again see the angel of the Lord. And so should we let him in on what we're about to do? And of course, this revelation that God gave to Abraham led him to plead for the salvation of his nephew Lot and his loved ones. And when you understand, when God takes you into confidence over what he is planning to do in the future as it relates to the peoples of this world, it should move you to prayer and to an open lips to share the good news with people, all right? Now, to get the flow of thought of where we're going, uh, though we've already covered verses 15 to 21 in great depth, I want to begin by starting there and reading it. So follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, come tonight to meet the pastor. Matthew 24, 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, 
Whoever is on the housetops must not go down to get the things out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, we've covered those verses. Look at verse 23 now. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs or Messiahs, depending on your English Bible, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, the context is critically important. And some of you have walked into this series fresh, so let me just dust off our minds and refresh us to where we are. Matthew chapters 24 and 25 take place on the Mount of Olivet. And of course, there's something that led up to this discussion. If you read chapters 22 and 23 of Matthew, Jesus is rebuking and confronting the religious leadership of Israel. They're called scribes and Pharisees. Sometimes they're just called Jews. The term Jews can be used in a broad way of all sons and daughters of Abraham, or sometimes in a very specific way in the New Testament. John often does this, but not exclusively, of the leadership of Israel. And so he has just indicted the leaders of Israel with, as those who killed the prophets. And because of their hatred for the things of God, because they had become self-righteous like many Gentiles in the world today, Jesus said in verse 36 of chapter uh, 23, notice, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. All what things? The judgments that he has just spoken of because of their rejection and their persecution of the man of God, they are going to be judged by God. The temple of the Lord called the house of the Lord in the context is going to be destroyed and they're going to be scattered across the planet. Your house, he said, is going to be left desolate, a reference to the temple. So here they are, these men, these godly men who had walked with Christ for three years. Jesus just said the temple is going to be destroyed. And so the crowd's gone. Verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away with his disciples. And he came up to, and, and his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, Mark tells us specifically who those disciples were, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So just four of the apostles at this point are with him. 
And of course, this was Tuesday before Friday. On Friday, that's Passover, he's going to be crucified. This is Tuesday of the last week. And they're going to ask him a question. And the answer Jesus gives is the single longest answer, at least recorded in Scripture, to any question that's ever asked by his disciples. Further, Mark tells us that they were sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Some of you have been with us to Israel, and God willing, we're going in September of 2023. In fact, it just opened the registration. It's already a third full. But if you're on the Mount of Olives, you look down the Mount of Olives, that massive graveyard, and at the bottom is the Garden of Gethsemane, and then the Valley of Kidron, and then up, 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 and you see the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is today. So here they are, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they see this magnificent temple. I mean, it's breathtaking. It's covered in silver and gold and copper and bronze and It has some of the finest masonry that has ever been used in the construction of a building. Verse 2, Jesus picks up on what he had just said to the crowds. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Which prompts them to ask the question of verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You'll notice they asked three questions, grammatically, technically two questions, but the second question has two parts to it. And so they say, first, tell us, when will these things happen, referring to his prediction that the temple is going to be destroyed? That would be a huge event in their mind. Because the last time the temple was destroyed was under Solomon when Nebuchadnezzar came down with the Babylonians, and it was nothing but a time of heartache that followed. So they're thinking, you're going to allow the temple to be destroyed, the place where we meet God, the place where we worship God? But they're also interested in a statement that Jesus made. He said of the Jewish people, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, I will not come back until they say, and he's quoting Psalm 118, until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there are some people today, they call themselves supersessionists. They say the church has superseded Israel, that we're the new Israel. Popularly, it's called replacement theology. But Jesus was clear. His second coming cannot happen until the Jewish people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Jesus came in the name of Yahweh until they recognize that his second coming cannot take place. So that's the first question. And the second question logically follows. And what will be the sign of your coming? They're asking him, when will your enemies be crushed where you come and rule and reign in power and authority as the Old Testament prophets spoke of you? And so what does Jesus do? He looks down the corridors of time and he gives them a picture of what's going to precede his literal return to the earth. A number of signs, and we studied them very carefully in verses 4 through 14. Jesus calls them birth pangs. And they match the sealed judgment. Sometimes Christians almost sloppily say, well, we're seeing the birth pangs today. We are not. Jesus is clear, and you know it as you let Scripture interpret Scripture, that what we're seeing today are not the birth pangs. Now, what we're seeing today is important. 
Why is it important? Because to have birth pangs, for a woman to go in labor, you have to have a pregnancy. <laughs> and so the, the pregnancy is here. In fact, I think it's almost full term. But Jesus is clear in verse 8 that what unfolds in the first half of the tribulation is only the beginning of the birth pangs. And so we studied some of these. Now, some people say, well, we've always had earthquakes and we've always had famines and maybe we just have better technology. And we Look, that, that kind of statement is ignorant. Why is it ignorant? Because it fails to acknowledge that we are living in a time in human history that is distinctly different from 100 years ago. Israel is in the land. And God makes it clear that at the end of the age, because these prophecies that we're studying this morning cannot happen until Israel is in the land. And now after 1,900 years, God has established the nation of Israel as he said he would in a single day, he'd make them a nation. And he's gathering them from across the planet. That's the difference. And so if you look at Matthew 24 and you look at Revelation chapter 6 and 7, there's false Christ. That's the first horse of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He comes on a white horse mimicking Christ. There's wars. That's the second horse. The red horse. There's famines. That's the third horse. The black horse. There's death. That's the pale horse of death. There's martyrs. And so the fifth seal, you see these martyrs are under the altar. Then the sixth seal speaks of these cosmic changes. And though Matthew doesn't focus on them because he wants to focus on the very end cosmic changes, Luke does of these cosmic changes that will happen in the heavens. And then John, through the worldwide preaching of the gospel in Revelation 7, describes what Jesus describes in Matthew 24, 14 at the end of the field seal judgments. Remember, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall go to the whole world, and then the end shall come. When will that happen? during the time of the great tribulation. And so that's the seal judgments. That's the first half of the tribulation. Then again, there's this event that happens in the middle, this game changer, when the Antichrist now wants exclusive worship and he commits the abomination of desolation. Verse 16, then those who are in Judea, when they see this event, this is how you should respond. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The warning continues, verse 17. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get his things uh, out, of the, out that are in the house. You go to Israel today. To this day, they still have flat rooftops, just like they did in the first century. Don't go up on the housetop. Flee, run. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. So when the temple is desecrated, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee, run to the wilderness, and that's important, and we're going to see in just a moment why this is critically important as it relates especially to the Jewish people. This, by the way, will be a mark of conversion for many. They will basically be saying, you know, this is what Jesus said for us to do, and as his people, we're going to obey. And for others, it will be an evidence that Jesus is indeed the prophet. Remember in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, there's coming one who's like me, he's the prophet. And so in the New Testament, are you the prophet? In the day of Pentecost, Peter declares he is the prophet. 
See, there's a prophet who would be no ordinary prophet. He'd be prophet of prophets because he would be the Messiah where God would take on human flesh. He would be God in human flesh. He would be the prophet of all prophets. And so they're going to be reading this, some Jews, and they're going to say, wow, he did what Moses said is necessary. He told a short-range prophecy proving that you can trust all his long-term prophecies. Now, understand Notice in verse 15, I skipped over it, in parentheses, it says, let the reader understand. More literally, the text reads, whoever is reading this, let him understand. So God is writing this, not just for the church to study, but in this future day, the Jewish people are going to be pouring over sections of Scripture like the Olivet Discourse. And by the way, what Jesus is teaching, Matthew reminds us that this is going to happen at the end of time. So look at verse 21. He begins the verse with the little three-letter word for. It means, in other words, let me explain. Let me explain why you need to flee and run. For at this time, there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place since the beginning of the world until now and never will again. So there's a sense of urgency here. When the abomination of desolation takes place, run. Why? Because the nature of the tribulation period is going to drastically change. Now, there are some Christians, they're very much a minority. They hold to a mid-tribulational viewpoint. They think that it is at this point that the church is raptured. And what they fail to see is that the first half of the tribulation period is also a time of tribulation. That's how it's described in Revelation 6. It's called the wrath of the Lamb. The only difference is it goes from a time of tribulation to great tribulation. It intensifies. God is trying to use the seal judgments of the first half of the tribulation to get the attentions of the people of this world that they might repent and believe. But once the abomination of desolation takes place, What was merely birth pangs now changes into full labor. Here's a picture again I've given you uh, of the relationship between the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. There are seven seals, and if you remember, you can only break one seal at a time. You can't take the seal scroll and see all seals at once. You can only see one at a time, and they're broken one at a time by the Lamb of God who's worthy to break it, John says. But when you open up the seventh seal, you're able to see seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowl judgments. Someone asked me, does this mean that the people in heaven are looking down upon the earth and watching? No. You know, sometimes people take that verse out of context in Hebrews 12, and we have this great cloud of witnesses, you know, and grandma's up there and saying, you know, grandson, you need to get right. If I was there, I'd give you a whooping. You know, that would make, I suppose, heaven like hell if we were able to see. But what they are able to see, and by the way, the great cloud of witnesses contextually are all the folks in chapter 11, those great men and women of faith who gave us an example to follow. But what they can see is the nature of the judgments, and when they see it, the Bible says there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. It's just like, their breath is taken away. And so Jesus says in verse 22, unless those days were limited or cut short, no one would survive, but those days will be limited because of the elect. And so what I want you to say this morning, that's all by way of setting. Are you with me? Say amen. All right. Now, there are three truths that I want us to get concerning Christ's return 
to the earth. Three critical truths I want to register this morning in our thinking. First, they're in your outline. There's a note-taking outline if you're new. You can print it out online if you're live streaming. Christ's return will come with increasing deception. It will come with increasing deception. Verse 23, we read, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Now, times are bad in the sealed judgments. But the trumpet judgments, people are desperately looking for answers. Maybe they've rationalized up until this time, well, this is due to climate change or this or that, but there's no rationalization anymore. The thing has changed so dramatically. And of course, with that change, the false prophets are going to change dramatically. Why? Because by this time, for the most part, the Jews have rejected the Antichrist and they've embraced Jesus as Lord. And because Satan hates the Jews, he's going to go after the Jews, and he's going to increase the great deception. And by the way, as we move towards the end of the age, deception increases. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 that in latter times, men will depart from the faith. I never would have imagined, having gone into the ministry some 40 years ago, 1978, that I would ever have seen so many evangelicals, so to speak, defect from the Christian faith. Pastors, music leaders, theologians, turn from the faith. But God says that's a mark, not of simply the last days, but the latter times, the very end of the age. Well, you're at the very end, and, and so we need to be alert. Again, this, there's timeless lessons for us today. John said in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. How do you test the spirits? By knowing the book. And therein lies the problem today. People don't know the book. Pastors aren't teaching the Word of God. They get these little 20-minute sermonettes, and you preach for an hour, and people are coming unglued. That's sad. That's the pathetic state of the church today. They can watch their Clemson USC ball game for three hours, but they can't listen to a sermon for an hour. And one of the marks of the end of the age is great, great deception. And it will come through Satan, his false prophet, and a multiplicity of false prophets that the Antichrist will help raise up. And so people professing to be the Messiah will come along and they'll be trying to draw the Jews out of the wilderness. Remember, they've done what Jesus said, flee into the wilderness. So when you're in the wilderness... Don't miss the fact that these who say, oh, Jesus is back, don't be deceived. Listen, verse 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, the way it's structured grammatically, it's not possible. In fact, more literally, it reads, if it were possible, he would deceive the elect. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't be deceived. But you can't be deceived as one of the elect, and the elect are the whosoever wills, and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. But you cannot be deceived as one of the elect in terms of renouncing salvation. But in this context, you can be deceived in thinking, oh, Jesus is back. Look, there's someone out there, and he's doing great signs and wonders, and he says, I'm the Messiah. It must be him. And Satan has incredible persuasive powers. We get to believe that white is black, that up is down, that evil is good, that good is evil. 
He reverses things. And because God loves people, even when the evil one is working over time, God will respond with his own uh, countermeasure. Right out next to this verse, Revelation 14, 6 through 10. Put that in the margin. Revelation 14, 6 through 10. As you're jotting down that, let me read it to you. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens heaven and the earth, and the sea and the springs of waters. And another angel, a second one followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength, and the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So Satan is working overtime, and God is working overtime through these three angels for the first time ever in the history of the world. God is going to preach the plan of salvation through an angel, and he'll send these other angels warning them of the consequences if you ignore the gospel that God wants you to believe. Now, remember, these who have fled to the mountains are saved people. You see it by their deeds. Faith without works is dead. And so the evil one is going to try to lure the Jews out. Why? Because he hates the Jews. There's no explanation for the hatred of the Jews except Satan is behind it. So these false Christ, false prophets will come to mislead, if possible, even the elect. You say, well, he couldn't mislead me. Listen, the only way you can't, the only reason you can't be misled today is because you have the supernatural presence of God, the Holy Spirit in your life. And he is sealed in you for the day of redemption. If they were of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they went out from us shows they were never really of us to begin with. If you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never had it. But that doesn't mean that Satan can't knock you off kilter and do some turmoil in your life. While you will not renounce him, you can fall prey to these great signs and wonders that will come upon the world. Look at verse 25. Behold, I've told you in advance... So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe him. Jesus is saying such talk is an absolute lie, so do not believe it. Now, there will be great encouragement in that day when the people of God, the Jewish people, are pouring over these scriptures and they're going to say, some of them, how did we miss it? They're not converted when they see Jesus. That's a gross abuse of the prophet Zechariah when they look on him whom they have pierced. They will mourn. That's not when they're converted. They're converted before that. But when they see Jesus, their hearts will be broken. He is the one we rejected, as will the hearts of millions of Gentiles who are converted so Jesus, again, wants to prepare them, and he wants to prepare them by reminding them that his coming will come with great deception. That's the first point. Secondly, they're on the outline. Not only will his second coming come with increasing deception, Christ's return from heaven will come with great power, with great power. Let's read now verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. No one, and I mean no one, 
will be able to miss the return of Jesus. His coming will be sudden, it will be startling, it will be visible, just as lightning flashes. He wants them to know that these false prophets, these false Christ, oh, he's out there in the wilderness. Oh, no, he's over here in this inner room. You know, you need to go see Jesus. No one will miss it. You'll know when he shows up. It will be as dramatic as a lightning flash across the sky. And he wants them to know this. For just verse 27, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. No one will need to have to search around and wonder when he shows up. Now, his first coming, he came in humility to die. But when he comes a second time, he's coming to rule and to reign. He's coming with power and with judgment. At the rapture, he'll take us up in the twinkling of an eye. But at the second coming to the earth, the second part of his return program, every eye will see him. The scripture is clear. Turn to Revelation chapter 19 for just a moment. Hold your finger here. Fast forward to Revelation chapter 19. John gives us some more details about the return of the Lord Jesus from heaven that I want you to see. It'll be worth turning there. Revelation 19 and verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. By the way, just as there are people who say that Jesus did not literally, physically, actually, bodily rise from the dead. We had a preacher over in Hilton Head who said that a few years ago. On Easter, his resurrection message was, Jesus is raised up in our hearts. A spiritual resurrection. Anyone who denies the bodily resurrection of Christ is a false teacher, a false prophet, and you should run in the opposite direction. And there are many across our nation. Even so, there are people who say that Jesus is not literally going to come again. Some liberals say, well, he's going to come and that his, his people will make the society more Christianized. Well, I don't think we're doing too well. Hmm. Things don't seem to be getting more Christianized. In fact, Jesus said they're going to get worse. That sold maybe 30 years ago. And then there are some amillennialists who look at the book of Revelation in two ways. They're called preterists. If you are with me for my series on the Revelation, remember in the opening uh, message, I dealt with four approaches to the book of Revelation, and one is called preterism. Praetor is a Latin word that means past. And so a partial preterist, like an R.C. Sproul, would say, well, all of Revelation is history with the exception of the second coming. And they would say the same with the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the Olivet Discourse. It's all history, Vadi Bakum teaches the same thing. That, that's just wrong. That's dangerous. You have to spiritualize the Holy Scripture to come to that conclusion. So for the preterists, they just say there's one big event that's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back. He'll take us all to heaven. He'll send all the rest to hell. One big judgment, and that's the end. Oh, no, no, no. We're actually going to study before we're done in this series, by God's grace, four different judgments that are still in the future. And so, no, the scripture is clear that Jesus will literally, physically, bodily, and then there are full preterists. I, I, I scratch my head and think, I don't even know. I, don't, I wonder if they're saved. <laughs> they, they say that Jesus has already come back. The second coming has already happened. As one dear family called me this week because their son had embraced that, their adult son, I said, that's just heresy. That's just heresy. Jesus hadn't come back yet. 
You cannot read the plain text of Scripture and come to that conclusion. Do you remember there in the Mount of Olives? Jesus is telling his men to wait until the Spirit of God comes because you can't serve until you're indwelt. And that's going to happen on Pentecost, this Old Testament feast that is going to be fulfilled literally. And they watch him ascend into heaven, like watching a balloon go up, and you keep watching. I still see it. You see it. I see it. I see it. I see it. Men of Galilee, two angels say, why do you look standing? Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Jesus went away literally, actually, bodily, visibly. And the Bible teaches he will come back literally, actually, bodily, visibly. And this is why it's important you know your Bible, because you have people today who are using the language of historic Christianity, but a different dictionary in terms of how to define it. John has already stated in Revelation 1-7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. He's quoting the prophet Daniel. And every eye will see him. Even those who have pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Further reading into verse 11 here. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Now it was customary for a triumphant Roman general when he defeated his enemy to come back from the battle and he would mount on to a beautiful white stallion. And so Julius Caesar, after he conquered North Africa, comes back on a white stallion with the prisoners and all the spoils of war behind them. The imagery was clear to any first century reader. Well, this is not symbolic. This is a real horse. Jesus is coming back on a real white horse. I was witnessing in uh, New York City uh, in the airport waiting for a flight. It was way overdue going to Israel one time. And, and I was speaking to this Orthodox Jew, and we were talking about the Messiah's return. He said, well, we believe he's coming back on a white horse. I said, you do? I said, that's what the Revelation teaches. He's coming back literally on a white horse. Why? Because it is a picture of a sovereign, triumphant Lord who is coming back. Look, when he came the first time and he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he came down that hill on a lowly donkey, but not on this day. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it who is called Faithful and True. This is very different from Satan and all his evil compatriots who are nothing but liars and deceivers. He is faithful and true. And notice, and in righteousness, he judges and wages war. He comes as a conquering general and he will judge. Look, the world rejected him at his first coming. And most of the people, sadly, of this world are still on the broad road that leads to destruction. And when he comes at his second coming, sadly, most of the people will still be on that broad road. He came the first time as a helpless babe, but he is coming back as a conquering king. Men abuse him, they mock him, they make fun of him, they use his name in vain. Not on this day. And there'll be no mercy on this day. The time will have expired. The mercy of God will have given over to his wrath. Notice how verse 12 begins. His eyes are a flame of fire. Perfect vision. It's an imagery that's already been used in Revelation chapter 1 and again in the second chapter. Nothing escapes his notice. He can't be fooled. He is incapable of doing anything but fair and righteous judgment. He will be able to see every deed, thought, and word that we have spoken 
that is wrong and evil. Nothing will escape his notice. No one will be able to escape and say, I didn't know. His eyes are a flame of fire, notice, and on his head are many diadems. Now again, when a Roman general would conquer the enemy, one of the things they would do, and if there were several kings involved, they'd literally stack them. They'd put the diadems on top of their head. You see King David doing this in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He, he conquers the Amorite king. What, is the, what do they do? They put the diadem on his head. Now, we'll study it next time. You don't want to miss it. But there's a battle that is going to end also at this time. And it's a battle where all the armies of the world come against Israel because they hate Israel. And Christ comes back as a sovereign king pictured here wearing the diadems of this world. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And he has a name written on him, notice, which no one knows except himself. A name that no one knows except himself. I have over 50 commentaries on the Revelation. In fact, I wrote my own commentary on the Revelation. I've never published it, but I have it written. I've got like 15 commentaries done. But I'm so sick to death of these Christian book companies and all their compromise and all they're interested in is making money and they'll compromise sound theology at the price of doing it. Lay that aside, what's interesting to me is all the commentaries that say what it is that's written on him. <laughs> the text says he has a name that no one knows except himself. Let's keep reading. By the way, this name, we're, we've learned something about it already if you were here earlier in the series. Remember Christ when he's describing true, true believers in the church at Philadelphia? He says this, and I will write on him the name of my God, these believers, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God and my new name. Now, he's looking into the future, so there's coming a day when you're going to know his name, but we don't know it right now, okay? And so, why is he going to write his name on you? You know, when I was a boy, sometimes, you know, eight children, <laughs> And, you know, we, maybe mom and dad would buy something special, maybe a special bag of cookies and write your name on it. That, that's your bag. And when you eat it, they're gone and whatever. Or, or you had some important item that was precious to you. You'd write your name on it. Well, you're precious to God. And he's going to write his name on you because you are special. He is clothed, notice, verse 13, with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, the blood on the robe is not the blood with which he redeemed us. The context is not redemption, but judgment. And again, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. I know that it's not the blood of his cross for the simple reason that there's another messianic passage that you should write out in the margin. Isaiah 63, 2-4. Isaiah 63, 2-4. The language of Isaiah removes all doubt as to what this is describing. Let me read to you from Isaiah. It said, God asks, and it's a messianic passage. Jews believe this is a messianic passage to this day. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? I've trodden the wine uh, trough alone and from the people there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and stained all my raiment. 
for the day of vengeance was in my heart. It's a, it's a picture of when Messiah comes again to rule and reign and set up his kingdom and his garments, so to speak, are covered with blood. And he uses the imagery here of a wine press. Here's a picture of a first century wine press in Israel. Uh, this is a large one, unlike the one that you might see in Nazareth. Uh, the grapes are put around that center hole, and you can see, if you look carefully, little troughs, because when the grapes are squished with your bare feet, the wine runs down those little channels and goes into that hole. And what happens if you're involved in the trotting of grapes? Well, you, you, you get this wine that looks like blood splattered all over your clothes. So you can see the imagery here. Verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the text says, and his name is called the Word of God. It's one of the familiar names that many of you know. There are many titles given of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, of course, we read as we celebrated Christmas, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is that the only begotten, full of grace and truth. He is the Word of God, and verse 14 says, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, a lot of people get confused at this point concerning Christ's return because they fail to recognize that, again, it comes in two phases, that we don't believe that Christ comes back twice, but there's a program where first he comes for the church. And so Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Not everyone's going to see physical death. But we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Now, the Greek word, a mystery, is mysterion. It was something that was once hidden, but now is revealed. And while you may see the rapture in the Old Testament in type, it was hidden. Now, the Jews recognized the doctrine of the resurrection. Jesus taught the doctrine of the resurrection from Moses. When the Sadducees, who were sad, you see, because they denied the doctrine of the bodily resurrection, and they come with this incredible example, Jesus reminds them that God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, Abraham, when he died, he wasn't extinguished. He's still very, very much alive. They believed in life beyond the grave. They believed in a future bodily resurrection. Job, who lives during the time of Abraham, speaks of the fact that his body would be raised. In Daniel 12, when the Old Testament saints are raised, at the end of the tribulation, their bodies are going to come out of the grave, either to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. But what God doesn't reveal in the Old Testament is that between these two mountain peaks of prophecy, he will build his church. It's a mystery, something hidden but now revealed. And you don't have to know Greek to figure that out. Just read some of the New Testament mysteries, like Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, Paul said, I want to tell you a mystery. God has removed the dividing wall between Jew and Greek, and he's made them into one people, the church. You see, the Jews believed Gentiles could be saved. What they didn't know was that they could be saved on the same level as a Jew could. And that's what Peter's blown away when he goes to Cornelius' house in Acts 10, and he comes back and reports to the saints in Jerusalem and said, hey, man, what happened to us on the day of Pentecost happened to them. They received the Spirit of God just like us. Wow, that was a mystery. It was not revealed in the Old Testament, now revealed. And so... 
John, speaking of this mystery, echoes the same truth. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as of yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. One of these days, we will be like him. We'll never be as him. He alone is God, but we'll be like him and that we will have a glorified body like his. And so here are these armies. Now remember, the Old Testament saints haven't been resurrected yet. When are they resurrected? Daniel 12, the first two verses, at the end of the tribulation. So who are these people? These are church saints, which requires a pre-tribulational rapture, and we'll see more reasons before we're even done with this great portion of Scripture in the weeks to come. And so the armies, this is the church, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, we're following him on white horses. Now, it doesn't say the army, but it's plural, the armies, indicating there is more than one group. Who would be included in it? Well, angels of God, Jude tells us that. They're part of the army. The church saints and tribulation saints as well. And so they are riding with the Lord Jesus. Notice in fine linen, white and clean. And if you were here in our last session together, we saw that the white robes that God gives is used in two ways by John and the Revelation. One of imputed righteousness, the righteousness you're gifted that you must have if you're ever going to go to heaven, but also the righteous acts of the saints. And so we saw that before the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's a time of evaluation, and God gives us robes that picture the rewards that we have received. And so here's Jesus coming from heaven to earth, and he's not coming with a choir, he's coming with the armies of heaven. And he is going to bring judgment. It's an incredible event. It's not hidden. Every eye will see it. And Jesus will fulfill what he told them at Caesarea Philippi. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not come against it. Again, verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So here's the king. He's on a white stallion. And what are we doing? We're right behind him. You say, I'm afraid to ride a horse. You won't be on this day. Don't worry. You'll be in a glorified body. All your fear will be gone every once in a while, typically a child, but not always, just animal lovers. They'll call on the Bible line and they'll say, well, will there be animals in heaven? I said, well, of course. You know, we're coming back on horses. We know there's horses and we know there are cats. I'm not so sure about dogs, but we know, you know, we know there's cats. In fact, Revelation 22, 15 said, outside are the dogs. <laughs> not really. I mean, it does say that, but it's not being used of literal dogs. Hey, look, if you're a cat lover, uh, I switched it around the last time. I made cats and their, you know, intestines as the uh, strings used for the harps in heaven, but I'm not going there today. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. What a picture. When I was single, I was driving from Massachusetts to Colorado in my 1972 Volkswagen, no air conditioning. I was in the middle of the country. I just had to pull over my car. I had never seen anything like it. These magnificent horses, these stallions, hundreds of them, just kind of wild stallions marching across the plain with dust and smoke and It was just a magnificent thing to see. Look, millions and millions of white horses are going to fill the skies as Jesus comes back victorious. Look at verse 15. It's rather chilling. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treats 
and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. This sharp sword, which we saw in Revelation 1 and verse 21, is a symbol of the Word of God. We'll come to this in our next time, and I'll explain it and let Scripture interpret Scripture. But just to give you a few verses, there's not a literal sword coming from his mouth, but the sword is the Word of God. You're told to take the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. And of course, this perfectly dovetails with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There Paul says when Jesus comes back on the exact same day, then that lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and will bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Further, Isaiah 11.4 describes this sword for us, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And so again, this symbol of the wine press picturing the wrath of God, it's a chilling scene, and by his word, he brings judgment, and the massive armies of the world in a moment's time will be destroyed. Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now please understand that the Lord is not bearing his thigh. This is not the biblical basis for a tattoo as so many are scrambling to find. Literally the Greek text reads, and on his robe, even on his thigh, he has a name written. In other words, monogrammed on that portion of his robe that is over his thigh, is his great title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You should put in the margin next to this verse, Deuteronomy 10, 17. Deuteronomy 10, 17. There Moses writes of God the Father. He says, for the Lord, Yahweh, Adonai, your God, Elohim, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. But here, both titles are given to Jesus. Malech HaMalekim, he is King of Kings, and he is Adonai HaAdonim, he is Lord of Lords. And so Jesus Christ, as a visible representation of the Holy Trinity, is coming as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords, and no one will debate his sovereignty or his deity on that day. Now go back to Matthew 24. I'm just about finished. Matthew chapter 24. In verse 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, even so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then he adds in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, this is an idiomatic expression, and depending on its context, it's used in different ways. And I don't want you to miss how Jesus uses this, what we might consider a bizarre proverb, but it's really not all that bizarre, especially as you read the rest of the chapter, which we're going to study later on with a number of other passages, because the battle of Armageddon is not exclusively a New Testament doctrine. It's found in the Old Testament as well. And so what do you do? You know, we had this snake that tried to break through our fence some time ago, about two years ago, and you know, it had a little knot hole in one of the slats, and the, 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 the snake went in, he got caught in the knot hole, and he died there. He, he, he got caught in the knot hole. It kind of surprised me. I thought, I, I would have thought he could have gotten out, but he didn't. My wife said, there, there's something dead. I think Charles, our grandson, found him, and, and there he was stuck in the knot hole. There was that stink. What happens when you get this stink? You get vultures. We had a dead raccoon in our yard. What did we have? I said, something's dead down there. 
I can smell it, and before long, the vultures came. It's like they have a sixth sense that God gave them. Now, people hate those buzzards, but they're God's garbage cans. He cleans, they clean things up for us all across the state of South Carolina. And when something's dead, down come those turkey vultures. What is he saying? We'll see it next time at the finish of the Armageddon. There's going to be so much death, so much blood, as all the armies of the world come against the Jewish people. Jesus, by the word of his mouth, is going to slay them. And there's going to be a bird feast like man has never, ever seen before. It comes with great deception, increasing deception. His coming comes with great power, and then it comes with great mourning. His return will come with great mourning. Everyone will know he's back, just like people know when there's something dead and vultures all around. They'll know he is here. It's not hidden. And when they see him, well, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Now, several prophetic passages describe various cosmic disturbances that happen at different times during the seven-year period. These are the catapult of all of those disturbances. He's quoting the prophet Joel, the second chapter. The sun is darkened, and since the moon gets its light from the sun, that's darkened as well. And really, he's creating like you go into a jeweler, and they take out a black piece of felt, and they lay that little diamond on there. Why? Because it just makes it pop. God's going to turn the lights out, (laughs) and Jesus is coming back. And every eye will see him. Everyone will know that he is here. It's going to be terrifying, verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, they're not mourning in repentance. No time left to repent. It's over. They're mourning in grief. How wrong they were. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. He'll gather those who are believers, who have come to faith during this time frame, who have survived the tribulation, and he'll send his angels, and he's going to bring them in their physical human bodies. We'll be there in our resurrection bodies to Jerusalem, to the valley of judgment that the prophet Joel speaks of. Somehow, God will, in his perfect justice, then begin to separate the believers from the unbelievers. Now, we've just cracked the door. Next time is critical to this sermon. Let me give you three applications in terms of questions that I want to leave you with. Number one, do I live with the expectation that Christ is coming back? Ask yourself that. Nothing needs to happen for the rapture to take place, all kinds of things for the second coming, But Jesus commanded us to occupy until he comes. And scripture plainly indicates that some Christians will shrink back in shame when he comes. Listen to these words. And now little children abide in him. So that when he appears, he's speaking to believers, little children. We may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now the Bible teaches that God will be ashamed of unbelievers. But believers who are alive when Jesus comes back, some will shrink back in shame. I don't want to shrink back in shame. 
I want to passionately serve him. Paul says we have as our ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to him. I mean, we've got every reason in the world to serve him and not to shrink back. When you look back at Calvary, all you can see is a cross by which you were purchased with precious, sinless blood. When you look within, the love of the Spirit of God has been poured out in your heart. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you've become a child of God. So when I look back, I see he died for me. When I look into the present and I look within, he indwells me. When I look around, I see brothers and sisters in Christ who love me. When I look ahead, I see my king coming back to whom I will give an account. And so knowing the fear of the Lord, among other reasons, we are to serve the Lord. Everyone who has this hope that he's coming again, as he'll say in the next verse, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, a few verses later, purifies himself as he is pure. Secondly, do I live with the expectation that Christ is coming to judge? The return of Jesus to the earth is very different again from his first time. First time he came as a suffering servant, he's coming the next time as a warrior king. He is coming in righteousness to judge and to wage war. But unlike other conquerors who are full of ambition and pride and power, Christ is coming in righteousness. He's coming in perfect holiness to judge the world. Some people don't like this message. They say God is too good to judge anyone. He's too loving to send anyone to hell. My friend, he's too good not to judge. He is holy. He is righteous. Even on a human standard way, we don't like an unjust judge. But somehow we want God to overlook our sin. But your sin will not be overlooked. You will either receive the one who in your place took its punishment or God will righteously, justly deal that punishment out upon you. Third and finally, I would simply ask, do I live with the expectation that Christ is my king? John uses the same terminology that Paul does. Paul says in Philippians 2, a day is coming when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, or to use John's terms, king of kings. A day will come when the world will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, right now, God allows you to make that decision freely. But there's coming a day when you will have no choice if you don't know Jesus. Because everyone, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Some because they want to, some because they have to. And they'll do it right before they are forever removed from the presence of God into the place of eternal judgment. Now, God wants to show compassion to us, and he wants us to have compassion on a lost world. And when you see the lost people of this world, I hope you don't have some uppity-up, holier-than-thou attitude. I don't care whether it's our president and vice president and speaker who are so perverted esteeming abortion 
and the mutilation of little children in the womb and even outside of the womb, wanting little boys to be castrated and little girls to have mastectomies. This is just perverted, upside-down, depraved thinking. But God would call you to have compassion on such people because but by the grace of God, there go I. Now, Holy Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture given for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I pray today for someone here who is unsure of their salvation. They want to go to heaven, but they don't really know for certain that if the trump of God were to sound, that you would catch them up into the air. But thank you, they don't have to wonder. Your word is clear that we cannot earn salvation, that it is the gift of God, eternal life. And Father, your word teaches, like with any gift, even in the human realm, it's earned by someone else. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, with your own blood, you paid for this gift of eternal life. That if we would come in faith, not by feeling, but by faith, believing the truthfulness of what you said, that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call on Jesus will be saved. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me. If you pray that, then pray this. I thank you for saving me on the basis of what Jesus did by his death and resurrection. Help me never to be ashamed of you and I spend the rest of my day serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.